This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Earthwise, environment and peace with justice interviews on Plains FM 96.9. Welcome to Earthwise. I'm Martin Griffiths. Our guest for today's program is American Anne Wright. Anne's very active campaigning for peace and justice in the world goes back a long way. Indeed. She served in the U.S. Army Army Reserves for 29 years, retiring as colonel. She then became a U.S. diplomat for 16 years, stationed in U.S. embassies in many parts of the world. But in 2003, Anne resigned from the U.S. government in opposition to the U.S. war on Iraq. There's still more. In 2010, we interviewed Anne about the Freedom Flotilla to Gaza, she was on a sister ship that witnessed the attack on the Mavi Marmara. Welcome to Earthwise, Anne Wright. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. After all these years, now 11 years, we've been speaking with each other. That's, That's right. We've yes. interviewed you about Guam. We've interviewed about the attack on the Mavi Marmara. And things are still happening. Well, this time, Anne, we've been anxious to interview you ever since we read a Truthout website article about NATO plans to expand in the Pacific. Do you think the world has forgotten when and why NATO was formed, or even what NATO means? <laughs> I, I think you're right. Uh, and certainly NATO wants you to forget it. Uh, they don't want you to realize that the North Atlantic uh, Treaty Organization, NATO, is now expanding into the Pacific Ocean, for God's sakes. That, indeed, uh, the... The uh, NATO expansion, which was um, happened after the dissolution of the Soviet Union back in the uh, late 19 uh, uh, or early 1990s, uh, where the U.S. government uh, told uh, the former Soviet Union that that NATO would not be encroaching on the Warsaw Pact countries, the countries right along the border with with Russia. Uh, but, of course, that uh, was not the truth, that indeed under the Clinton administration, the Partnerships for Peace actually was a, w- a way to get uh, countries to start working with NATO and the U.S., and then ultimately um, many of them joined NATO. And now we're looking toward the Pacific, where the U.S. has now pivoted, and during the Obama administration, the pivot to the Pacific was the uh, rallying cry, and now NATO is following with its partnerships, as they call it, with countries in in the Pacific, primarily South Korea, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. Yes, um, I read that NATO was formed in 1949. It was European countries, plus the U.S. and Canada. But now New Zealand is involved as a what they're calling partnerships in the Asia-Pacific region. So we're a partner. Does that make New Zealand restrict our ability as a country to have an independent foreign policy? Well, I think it does, because uh, the the NATO organization and the U.S. will always be pressuring uh, New Zealand to uh, to work with it on its, its uh, on NATO's 
uh, goals and missions, which may not be the same goals and missions as uh, the sovereign country of New Zealand may uh, have as their priorities. Uh, as a minimum, uh, the NATO partnerships are uh, asking for the, the four main countries of uh, Asia and the Pacific that uh, that NATO is targeting. Uh, they're asking for the participation in uh, freedom of the seas, uh, uh, actions uh, of challenging uh, the Chinese Navy. Uh, they're asking for participation in lots of military exercises that now they're bringing the actual European NATO countries into the Pacific uh, to participate in these. You might not be aware there's been some little bit of friction between Australia and New Zealand with the Australians accusing New Zealand of not being loyal enough to their traditional allies. We've been sort of questioning whether NATO should be setting our foreign policy. Well, indeed, uh, whether any uh, multilateral organization ought to be requiring of its uh, members or partners, uh, you know, the kowtowing, so to speak, uh, to its uh, to what its goals may be. You know, now NATO, for the very first time, has had a strategy report that actually talks about uh, the Pacific, uh, that talks about uh, threats coming from the Pacific as a as a threat to the North Atlantic uh, Treaty Organization. It is a concern that uh, uh, the, that that NATO itself is trying to uh, push its way into uh, strategies for the Pacific. The um, the number of U.S. bases all over the Pacific, and including Palau, I couldn't believe that. Palau, it's a tiny, tiny island country. Tiny little Palau that. Uh, is part of the Compact of Free Association, which is uh, a U.S. Uh, uh, compact with both Palau, the Federated States of Micronesia, and the Marshall Islands, where since about 1989, uh, the U.S. has retained the, the uh, security uh, rights, or they call it the defense rights, that for for the whole area that is encompassed by the territorial waters of those three nations, and the U.S., in order to gain control over that area, huge area of the Pacific, the U.S. has been giving these countries um, a certain amount of money, uh, usually $1.3 billion that's split between the, the three countries, uh, plus uh, access to the United States uh, that... Uh, Micronesians, Marshallese, Palau's do not have to have uh, actual visas to get into the United States, and they are able to work in the United States. So all of this, uh, uh, and the U.S. government has, U.S. government agency programs, for example, the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, and other agencies of the U.S. government actually have programs in, in those countries all uh, being the payoff for letting the United States have free run uh, militarily-wise and economically, actually, uh, in that huge section of the Pacific Ocean. One of the things that uh, lately has been done is that uh, Palau uh, actually asked the United States if it wanted to have 
first a military runway built on one of its islands. And then secondly, it, it looks like there may be a naval base that will be built there also. Uh, not fully uh, acknowledging, in, in my opinion, uh, all of the things that come with uh, the U.S. military bases expansion, which will be an increase in violence on the local population, a degradation of the environment, and the, uh, uh, the uh, damage that will be done to the beautiful, beautiful underwater area that Palau has in its islands. I'm glad you mentioned environment because we're reading a book called Poisoning the Pacific of how military bases, um, you know, even if they're not used in wartime, that the destruction is done. You have big, you're in Hawaii, aren't you? And you have military bases there. Yes, yes indeed. And that book that's written by John Mitchell, uh, who I've known for many years, uh, his uh, uh, great detail of uh, all of the uh, the poisons that the U.S. military have put out into the Pacific, uh, beginning with, well, his analysis begins with World War II. It actually began even earlier than that when the U.S. was having things in the in the Philippines and all. But John's book is, uh, is startling with uh, the numbers, the amount of military poison and bombs and Agent Orange and other things that the U.S. has put in. He did not cover Hawaii in that book. And when I read it, he asked me, he sent me a copy of the book and said, well, uh, you know, could you write a review on it, which I was uh, very willing to do. Uh, but then I, I sat back and said, hey, John, you forgot about Hawaii. He mm -hmm. only had a couple of little paragraphs. So I ended up writing a very extensive article that uh, uh, is about the, the pollution in the Hawaiian waters with four military bases that are on just one of the islands, the island I live on, uh, Oahu, where Honolulu is. But we have the uh, Pearl Harbor. We have the U.S. Air Force Base, uh, Hickam Air Force Base. We have the large Army base, Schofield Barracks, that has the division. And then we have Kaneohe Marine Base that has a large uh, Marine Expeditionary Force there. So we have four major military plus the Coast Guard that has it's the regional headquarters for the Coast Guard in the Pacific. And then on the big island of Hawaii, we have a massive uh, training area that is still being bombed uh, by uh, U.S. military and by other militaries. The U.S. allows other militaries to fly their aircraft and bomb the sacred area between two of the volcanoes of, of the Big Islands. So we have a, a very large protest that's going on about the, the continued bombing of that area of the Big Island of Hawaii. Oh, gosh. Yes, I, I remember for about 30 years ago, Lois and I went for a short holiday to Hawaii, and my memory from that a very long time ago is about noise. It was just so noisy with planes flying 24 hours a day. My impression of Hawaii, and it's a sad impression to have. Well, indeed, we've been in Honolulu since the international airport is here. We do have the commercial aircraft, and then you add on top of that uh, the jets that fly out for in quotes, defense purposes. So it is a busy place and very noisy. You're listening to Earthwise, broadcasting in Christchurch on Plains FM 96.9, in Hamilton on Free FM, and in Whangarei on Coast Access FM. 
Today's guest is Anne Wright, and we're discussing NATO's expansion into the Pacific. Yes, let's get back to NATO. Now, there was um, just last year a November 2020 report, NATO 2030, United for a New Era. It seems to me there's an assumption that there's always going to be war, isn't there? Well, indeed, and when you have organizations that uh, whose purpose is, as they call it, defense, uh, but indeed you could almost say it's offense, that these organizations are not just defending against a threat, but are actually causing threats that may result in military action. You see what NATO is doing with its massive military exercises right along the Russian border, mansion of U.S. and NATO bases in Bulgaria and Poland uh, and up in uh, into Scandinavia and military exercises in Scandinavia that they've never had before. Uh, and then you see what's happening out here in the Pacific uh, with the, uh, the, the U.S. military primarily, but actually the U.S. military asking for uh, other countries to include NATO countries to send their warships into the South China Sea. For example, the U.K. just sent in three, three warships into the South China Sea that will be doing what they're calling all freedom of navigation, where they go in between the islands uh, uh, that have been developed by the Chinese. I mean, not that I agree with that, that they have, <laughs> they have taken some coral heads and made uh, big islands uh, complete with uh, ports and uh, uh, runways on them. So they, they, too, have been developing the area. One might say perhaps they have a reason, since it is called the South China Sea. <laughs> uh, the U.S. seems to forget that that name is a part of the oceans that are right around uh, the landmass China. Yes, and just, just in March of this year, Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, has told NATO that China is an economic insecurity threat. I think this whole tone is rather dangerous, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And we have several campaigns here in the U.S. Uh, one, one in particular is called China is Not Our Enemy, uh, that uh, is trying to push back against this rhetoric that's coming out uh, first from the Trump administration and has been picked up by the Biden administration now. And certainly there are economic and security challenges. Uh, I mean, economically, the, the massive uh, Chinese economy that uh, is actually doing the economic bidding of the rest of the world in producing, uh, mass producing things that we all over the world buy at inexpensive prices because they're made uh, by uh, low-paying uh, uh, employees in um, uh, in China, uh, even that said, though the economic but in uh, uh, China has been so extensive, including the you know the raising of the living so many people in in uh, uh, China uh, to the extent that uh, uh, it's just a it's quite an amazing um, uh, economic growth, and then. You look to what China is doing in terms of the the U.S. says it's a security threat and an economic threat. Well, when you look at what China is doing in terms of using its economic power uh, to 
actually expand its reach in terms of its belt and road projects where they are building railroads and roads and seaports uh, all over uh, Central Asia, South Asia, into the Mediterranean, and then actually in, up into Europe. Right now, the Chinese have uh, uh, leases on, I think it's 30 different seaports in Europe that they have decided the, the best way to uh, uh, have their influence in the world is, is economically, not militarily, where they still rank number three in the world, of course, but it's uh, like only one-third of its uh, budget, military budget, or it is only spending one-third of the amount that the United States spends on its military budget. Encouraging NATO to move into the Pacific, there's going to, seems to me there's a risk of nuclear confrontation. Well, indeed, the possibility of what one would always hope would be accidental, not purposeful use of, of uh, nuclear weapons is certainly there. Uh, the the we're, Another campaign that's being worked on worldwide is no first use of nuclear weapons. Uh, we, we in the United States are trying to get our government to sign a no-first-use uh, policy. Um, but the, the possibility of inadvertent, accidental um, uh, collisions of ships that might produce some sort of a, a reaction, um, we look at uh, what's happening you know, in, in North Korea where... The North Koreans uh, have developed their own nuclear weapons, and uh, I've been to North Korea uh, in 2015 with women across the DMZ, and the the real key there, in my opinion, is, of course, there's got to be a peace agreement, a signed peace agreement that the United States will sign, that it will not be a threat and will not overthrow the government of North Korea before there's any hope that the North Koreans would say, okay, you sign this, um, we think we can believe you, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I actually don't think the North Koreans will ever give up their nuclear weapons because they don't trust the United States, and certainly the policies of the United States have not been such that most uh, countries would trust them very far. I, um, I'm, well, I'm 81, actually, almost, and uh, I grew up, I mean, I can remember when we were really afraid of nuclear war. Now nobody sort of worries about it. But on, almost on the same subject, there's an interesting story come out from your part of the world about a sailboat called the Golden Rule. Well, yes, indeed. Uh, speaking of nuclear issues, uh, the, the Golden Rule is, uh, is a sailboat that in 1958 sailed from the mainland of the U.S. to Hawaii, and it was mm-hmm. on its way to the Marshall Islands to try to stop atmospheric nuclear weapons uh, or testing that the U.S. was doing in the Marshall Islands. The U.S. was blowing up islands. In in fact, over a period of about 10 years, we had 67 uh, U.S. nuclear explosions that were done in the Marshall Islands alone. So this little sailboat of four Quaker crew members sailed to Hawaii on its way to the Marshall Islands, except that the Coast Guard stopped it. And twice, threw the captain and crew in jail here, uh, refusing to let them to go on into the Marshall Islands. Uh, 
Well, after 1958, the boat, boat disappeared and was found derelict 10 years ago uh, up in Northern California. And our Veterans for Peace chapters there decided that they would renovate the derelict hull of the boat and, uh, and start sailing it again as an ed- educational tool uh, to talk about the dangers of nuclear weapons. So for six years, it traveled back up and, up and uh, down the west coast of the U.S. in Seattle, San Francisco, um, uh, Monterey, all the way down to San Diego. Uh, and then uh, uh, 21 months ago, uh, another intrepid crew brought the Golden Rule from uh, San Diego to the Hawaiian Islands. And for 21 months, she has sailed around all of the Hawaiian Islands, with the exception of Niihau, which is the or Hawaiian only, uh, Hawaiians only. Uh, and we've had over 120 educational events in the islands. Then, just a month ago, uh, because well, in the purpose. We were bringing her to the to the Hawaiian Islands, and then we were going to sail her on to the Marshall Islands, her original destination over 60 years ago. Uh, but because of COVID, uh, we were we have been unable to sail her to the Marshall Islands, and then on to Guam, then on to Okinawa, and then our plan was that by August of 2020, the 75th commemoration of the horrific U.S. bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that we would have the boat uh, there for those commemorations. Uh, But because of COVID, we have just sailed her back to uh, the west coast of the U.S. Uh, 29 days that another intrepid crew. Uh, This time we we had a co-ed crew. Uh, We had two, uh, two women and two men. One woman captain, one male captain, and two uh, crew members. Uh, So the, the boat is now back on the West Coast, and we will continue to do educational trips along the West Coast. And then uh, by the autumn, we will take her to the Midwest and begin the sailing uh, down the rivers of uh, the, the middle part of the country, the Mississippi River, from um, uh, Minnesota all the way down to New Orleans, and then along the Gulf Coast, around Florida, up the Atlantic coast and through the St. Lawrence Seaway and then down into the Great Lakes and then ultimately in, in a two-year swing they call the Great Loop, uh, we will probably do several hundred educational events talking about the dangers of nuclear weapons. Well, Anna, I'm afraid our time is almost up, but that's exciting news. You have a sailboat that historically was used to oppose the, uh, the tests in 1958 and now it's being used to warn the world about nuclear weapons. It did it all up and down the U.S. Did it get good media coverage? Well, in fact, it does. Uh, just this last uh, uh, Saturday, we had a front-page article in the, in the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, one of the largest newspapers on the west coast of the U.S. Uh, we also had a front-page article uh, in the Honolulu Star Advertiser when, when she first came here. Uh, so, you know, we do, that's the whole point, is to try to get as much publicity on the issue of, of the dangers of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. So this small sailboat as a vehicle for that is proving to be uh, quite useful. Well, that's wonderful news. I mean, we do need Amazing. good news. Because <laughs> it's wonderful talking to you, Ann. We're, we're right behind you and trying to follow everything that's happening. New Zealand has signed the treaty. 
to ban nuclear weapons. Not enough countries have, but New Zealand has ratified it. Thank you so much, Jan. Keep going all these years. Keep going. (laughs) We certainly will, and we appreciate the strong stance of New Zealand always against nuclear weapons and a nuclear-free Pacific. Absolutely. And world. Thank you so much. Thanks uh, for talking to us. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Aloha. Well, Martin, it was wonderful talking again to Anne Wright. What a wonderful woman she is. She keeps going, doesn't she? Yes. All these years. Well, let's close now with John Denver's song, Last Night I Had the Strangest Dream. Most of the Earthwise, goodbye. Goodbye. But do listen to the song. Last night I had the strangest dream I never dreamed before. I dreamed the world had all agreed to put an end to war. I dreamed I saw a mighty room, and the room was filled with men. And the paper they were signing said, They'd never fight again And when the paper was all signed And a million copies made They all joined hands And bowed their heads And grateful prayers were prayed And the in the streets below were dancing round and round and guns and swords and uniforms were scattered on the ground last night I had the strangest dream I never dreamed before I dreamed the world had all agreed To put an end to war I dreamed the world had all agreed To put an end